Welcome to the Intelligence Download, a podcast from BAE Systems. I'm Ben Tudor. Today I'm talking to John Beadle. If you've worked in UK insurance over the last couple of decades, it's like that John's work has directly or indirectly helped you. As an early high-profile contributor to and chair of the Insurance Fraud Bureau, IFED, the General Insurance Fraud Council, John has brought his expertise as a former New Scotland Yard detective and latterly head of fraud at Royal Sun Alliance to benefit the entire insurance industry. The efforts of John and his peers have helped transform the way that UK insurers have tackled fraud. So, John, welcome. Thank you. Quite a, quite a build-up then. Yes, sorry. <laughs> um, could we start off by talking a little bit about how you got, got into insurance fraud? Um, you know, making the jump from uh, the police to a more commercial counter-fraud role isn't uncommon, but I'm interested in how you made this move. Okay, um, by accident, really, I, I guess is the is the uh, easiest explanation. I, I, I left the police um, in the kind of mid mid nineties, uh, and uh, and then for about three years, I was director of a, um, a commercial organisation um, uh, that was doing corporate investigation, and included amongst that were uh, some insurance clients, quite large insurance clients. So I got to know the insurance market from an outside perspective. Um, and it came to a point when I was doing consultancy generally in the in the corporate investigation space and RSA asked me to uh, help them with a problem that they thought they had, which sounds quite uh, ironic now, where they thought they might have a problem in respect of fraud and could I carry out some work for them and report back to the board. Um, so I, I did, um, pointing out to them that actually they had quite a big problem. Um, and they said, well, that was obviously not what they wanted. Um, and could I recommend a course of action? So um, I wrote a, a kind of form plan for them. Um, and they said that they liked the plan and were going to implement it. And then a week or two later, rang me up and said, would I like to go back and implement the plan for them? Um, and they made me a, a very good offer. And I went back. And to my surprise, I was still there nearly 20 years later, um, uh, running the the, uh, the fraud team, or the counter uh, financial crime team, um, and uh, being engaged in a number of cross-industry uh, insurance market initiatives yeah. against fraud. Yeah, was that quite a common situation back in you know back at that time that insurers didn't really feel like they had a problem with fraud, or was that unusual? It, it was. Um, I can only speak probably directly for RSA's um, uh, perspective, but uh, but I think that was probably quite common, certainly amongst the, the larger um, UK general insurers, um, because you have to think of the market conditions then where the the uh, equity markets were incredibly buoyant um, so there was no particular um, uh, desire for insurers or, or financial need for insurers to make an underwriting profit um, they, they could actually get a very good return by investing um, the premium income on the equity markets so 
the desire to tackle fraud from a financial perspective wasn't there. And of course there was no uh, regulatory body in existence at the time that, that required insurers to take any action against uh, financial crime in general. I suppose then that sort of leads into a few questions around IFED and the IFB. Um, that was part of a law enforcement regulatory response, wasn't it? Well, the market changed really. Um, we'll remember the, or those of us old enough will remember the, uh, the dot-com the dot bubble bursting um, and the equity markets um, you know, falling uh, rapidly, uh, very quickly. Um, so the kind of business model for general insurers in terms of um, investing uh, premium income and, and getting good equity returns didn't exist anymore. And of course, around about that time, the Financial Services Authority uh, was established mm -hmm. and they came at things from a consumer protection viewpoint and uh, said to insurers, actually, it's not fair on your customers to ignore fraud and simply pass the cost of that fraud on um, in terms of premium incre um, in premium increases. So uh, there became a sort of double um, hit to insurers in a very short space of time where they really had to do something to tackle fraud. Yeah, there was an economic reason but also regulatory imperative. Abs absolutely, yeah. So how would you characterise the response of the insurance industry at the point then? I would say they did what was necessary. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say necessarily <laughs> enthusiastically, um, but if, if you look at how you're going to tackle fraud, um, you can put some, some really quite simple measures in, in respect of, of, of claims fraud, mm -hmm. um, and you can judge very quickly how you're going to get a return uh, on your investment in that respect. So most insurers around about this time began taking um, insurance claims fraud quite seriously um, and establishing um, internal teams or external um, investigative resource to, to tackle it. Mm. I suppose that raises a bit of a chicken and egg question. Um, yeah, I remember around about that time cash for crash suddenly becoming or beginning to become something that was in the public consciousness. Was there a fraud problem before the industry started to tackle it? Uh, was there a fraud problem before the industry began to tackle it? Um, I, I think I think there was from the work that I did for RSA um, at the end of the the nineties. Um, certainly, that there was, but it was pretty much ignored for the reasons I outlined earlier. Um, and then you, you look at um, the changing culture in Britain, where um, the no blame or the blame society um, uh, arose, and we copied, I think, our American um, American colleagues in that respect of of a, of a claim culture and a litigant um, society that looked at every opportunity for getting money out of financial institutions. And insurers were no exception. So, the crash for cash phenomenon grew up um, where. The, the legal profession um, realised that there was, I think, money to be made in this space um, and uh, we had a whole industry that, that grew up um, aimed at uh, facilitating 
um, whiplash primarily claims against uh, insurers. Um, and it became such a epidemic problem that uh, it, it made, frankly, the, the motor market in the UK a, a really very unprofitable place for insurers because it just drove the cost of uh, the claims um, skyrocketing up and made the, you know, the normal motor insurance book actually very unprofitable. And that also had a direct effect on consumers as well. You know, this you, you mentioned a sort of you know the, the the litigious attitude coming in, but also people realising that holding a sack, you know, and this was an education piece almost by the insurance industry, that this is something that's passed on to customers as well eventually, who are maybe not to blame at all. It, absolutely, and um, again, as the FSA have, have told insurers, you can't ignore fraud and, and just pass the cost on. But uh, with spiralling um, claims costs on, on motor insurance, um, clearly premiums have to rise, um, and insurers came under under fire for, for the rapid uh, rise in, in motor premiums, mm. and of course responded by saying, it's not our fault, um, there's this epidemic of, of fraud being aimed against us, and, and you, the government, and the regulators are doing nothing to, to help us. And actually that was probably quite fair comment at the time um, because I think insurers felt pretty alone in the world mm. back then um, and of course in, in the early 2000s um, we, we recognised, the, the major insurers recognised that, that this was almost an insol insoluble problem mm. because um, we, couldn't, we couldn't tackle these very organised criminal gangs um, by just uh, focusing on our own uh, internal systems or data because we didn't have a wide enough view of what was happening across the market. So we came together um, in around about 2004, 2005 and began planning um, how we could tackle it better and that led to us setting up the Insurance Fraud Bureau in 2006 which uh, um, was able to focus on the market-wide uh, fraud picture mm -hmm. um, and, and uh, utilise data for, across the market to spot these very big uh, linked uh, network frauds. Um, of course, they, they used um, uh, NetReveal, um, mm -hmm. which back in those days was Dedica, of course, uh, NetReveal um, across the industry data which gave them a very good picture of the network fraud and we began to tackle it in a, in a kind of much more organised and professional way. So effectively working, insurers working in collaboration both with themselves, you know, with each other and law enforcement regulator as well. Yes. It's something that seems almost a bit of a model for other financial markets and financial sectors um, but you know, also internationally. Can talk a little bit about that? Well, I, I think um, having been the chairman of the IFB uh, at its launch, I've been asked um, quite a lot of times since from, from other, um, other countries uh, about how we, how we went about doing what we did. And frankly, I wouldn't quite describe it as being designed on the back of a fag packet, as they say, but it probably wasn't much more than that in the sense that we knew we had to do something quickly. Yeah. Um, 
the, the insurance industry isn't renowned for acting with great deal of speed and cut through. Um, but, the, but the problem was so pressing that within the space of, I would say, 12 months, we'd gone from outline idea to uh, implementation, um, which was sort of breathtaking speed for the insurance industry in a cross-market uh, perspective. Um, and uh, we did it by, um, we, I think we had a four-page memorandum of understanding. Yeah, that's um, commendably and, brief. <laughs> yes, uh, and an agreement to fund um, the, the, the IFB. Uh, and that actually managed to, to work and got us off the ground uh, until about four, four or five years later when it was much more formalised and put on, on the much... Um, more professional business footing that it, it now exists on, um, but at the at the time um, we cut I think some corners probably in order to to get the the IFB off the ground and and doing what what uh, we thought it could do and in fact um, history has shown it it did do. Mm. It's been remarkably effective. I suppose one question I'd have is if. Um, if somebody in another country or another market was looking at this and saying, you know, we need to do this too, what you know, three pieces of advice would you have for them? Uh, I'd say you need to agree to um, share your data, which is the first fundamental thing you need. You need a good um, uh, analytical software overlaying that data that will enable you to identify the commonality of fraud across the market. And then you need the will and determination to fund the unit um, and keep it going um, in a corporate market way rather than a, a, a selfish um, company perspective. So there needs to be a, uh, sometimes you need to make decisions which might not suit your company necessarily, but actually is corporately for the market the right thing to do. Um, and I think those are the three things I'd say to people. Fantastic. And looking where we are now in the UK, um, and looking back over your career, what would you characterise as the constants and the changes in the way that we address fraud? Oh, that's a big question. Um, I think fraud is one of those things, I've, I've heard it described variously, Probably the best one that, that's described it is like a balloon, where you where you squeeze it in one one place, it it bursts out in a, in another, and I think fraud is very much like that. So um, as soon as you close off one avenue, um, you you open inevitably, or another one opens, um, and and it so it's recognising that it's it's actually constantly changing. Um, but pretty much it, it, it has stayed um, similar to, to, to when it started, except that, of course, um, we, are, we now have more, um, not, not only do we have technology to assist us, but, of course, the bad guys out there also have technology to assist them. So for us to get attacked across the web space and by, by bots is... Um, uh, it is now the kind of thing that we we are seeing and will continue to, to see I think in the in the future yeah. so you need to think um, <laughs> we're not the only people who have technology yeah. um, 
to help us. Um, so, so expect this to move into a much more technical um, and technology-based um, sphere, I think, in the future. A bit more of a technology arms race, effectively. Yeah, I, I think that's correct. For, from conventional fraud, um, from an industry perspective, I, I am really proud of the things that, that we, we've done from a cross-industry perspective. So having set up the Insurance Fraud Bureau, which would essentially help us to detect um, organised frauds across the market, we then kind of drew up a strategy of how do we make this a deterrent? How do we step up the deterrent factor against fraud? Um, and of course, one of the um, best things to do is to catch people uh, and then prosecute them and hopefully lock them up in prison. Um, so we came to a, um, an arrangement with the City of London Police and uh, the market, insurance market, agreed to fund um, a dedicated police unit um, to prosecute insurance fraud. Mm -hmm. um, and there's nothing um, morally wrong with that, provided that the industry um, recognises the police unit has uh, operational independence. So in other words, we can't direct who they should investigate and prosecute, but we could suggest to them that we would like them to follow this general strategy at the type of crime they're looking at. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we did. So we set up, um, I think it was 2012, we set up IFED, Insurance Fraud Enforcement Department. And then we followed that um, quite quickly with the setting up of the Insurance Fraud Register. Mm. So we now had and could say to people, if you engage in insurance fraud, there is a, a much better chance of you getting caught. Mm -hmm. And when you are caught, we will prosecute you. And when you've been prosecuted, we will put you on the insurance fraud register. And you will find it incredibly difficult to get insurance cover mm -hmm. in the future. So we had um, a tangible um, uh, deterrent that we could use and still to use now to try and dissuade people um, to commit insurance fraud. Was there a bit of a balance? I mean, you know, we talk about sort of cash or fraud, you know, claims inflation, you know, adding that extra TV or stereo onto a claim, um, and um, professional fraud. Was there, how did that balance work? No, there's a huge difference between... If you look at fraud, you have to look at it as a, as a spectrum. So on, on one end, you would have your professional organised criminal enterprises who make a living out of committing fraud um, and frankly they could be committing fraud against the insurance industry or against the banking sector or, or the um, credit card companies um, and these people are hardened criminals and uh, it's unlikely that we would put them off um, committing fraud so the only answer for these people is to make sure that our defences in terms of detection, prosecution uh, and so on are, are robust uh, and will, will work. At the other end of the spectrum you have what's often described as uh, soft fraud mm. um, and it's committed by people who in every other aspect of life are undoubtedly honest mm. 
uh, but they don't regard some aspects of insurance fraud necessarily as a crime, mm -hmm. or if they do, they think everybody does it, or they think it's okay because insurers are making lots of money and it's not really it's not really a victimless crime. crime. Yes. Yeah, victimless crime. So, of course, which are all myths. Um, so, the way the market and we I've been involved in a very interesting um, project where we've we're looking at um, behavioural science. So, it, it's almost impossible to catch somebody, uh, and I probably shouldn't be saying this publicly, but there, there we are, but it, it's obvious that somebody adds, adds one item onto a genuine claim um, it, it is, is going to be very difficult to, to catch. So if we can't catch them, um, how, can we actually dissuade them from that course of action? And we've done some research with, with a um, a company in, in this sphere uh, and, and have run a very large online test and found actually by using some very subtle uh, interventions which are imperceptible to uh, uh, people that actually you can affect um, people's behavior and their propensity to be honest by around 35-36% which is a big big change in, in, um, in behaviours. So we're now moving that into the market, um, trying to move it into the market. Um, we know it works in, in a test environment. Would it work in, in, a, uh, in a real life um, implementation? Well, we think it would, but that's the kind of point we're at now. But it's a really, it's almost the ultimate in terms of fraud prevention because dissuading people um, who, who may be tempted to commit fraud in the first place is, is the ultimate. Yeah, you're uh, persuading people not to commit a crime in the first yes. place. And uh, I, somebody um, made a comparison to the yellow lines that you see ahead of roundabouts on roads in the UK. Yeah. You can't necessarily stop people from speeding. Um, it's not so regarded as a, a, a crime by many people. You know, it's a, an acceptable crime. But what you do want to do is to stop them from going blatting over around about at 60 miles an hour, exactly. putting the yellow lines on the road, just unconsciously yeah. persuades people to slow down. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the government, um, the government, you use it uh, all the time in terms of, of you know, nudging is, is another, the description of it, nudging people's behaviour towards that which you're, you're desiring. Um, so, it's an interesting it's an interesting um, initiative which uh, yeah. we're looking at at the moment. Sounds like material for a whole other podcast, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, just looking back to the, you, you mentioned a sort of technological arms race almost. Um, uh, one of the areas I've heard discussed recently is social network analytics. Mm. Um, could you explain how that's applied um, in terms of identifying fraud in this particular market? Social network uh, was well, social network analysis, as opposed to a lot of people um, get confused with social media analysis. And I'm not talking about um, about looking for uh, ex external social media. I'm talking about um, maximizing um, the data that we possess about our customers. So we have a lot of data um, around our customers. Um, 
break that down into into entities uh, and and match it all against um, the data that we have about all our other customers. And of course, you find um, you find single spanning links which don't make sense mm. and may or may not be be fraudulent. So two people with different addresses, different names, but a common mobile phone number mm. will be very interesting. Yeah. Uh, and is this one of these a false identity? Uh, so so that it's it's a great help to uh, identify fraud that you probably wouldn't spot with the human eye otherwise. And, and linking um, groups of people together in a network um, so so forth. And of course that's what the Insurance Fraud Bureau does as well, but from a markets perspective. So we might identify a network of fraud within RSA's data, um, but that might be replicated in Aviva uh, and uh, LV and in Direct Line and so forth, so that um, then you look at it from a market perspective, it becomes uh, much more significant. Yeah. So and just to reiterate one of the things you said there, this isn't about looking at individual claimants' Facebook profiles or you know, individual no. policyholders' social media accounts or anything like that. This is about understanding patterns of suspicious behaviour or suspicious data within yes. uh, the, 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 the data corpus that you have. Yes. Um, and yeah, I think one example somebody gave me a while back was um, yeah, the same solicitor being used for a large number of claims in one particular area might point to stage claims, for example. Yes, ab- absolutely. Uh, and uh, of course, you can overlay that with, with uh, predictive modelling and a set, a set of, of a, a balanced scorecard uh, against which you, you would run it as well. But I, I think uh, particularly in certain books of, of, insu- of business, so motor, motor book in particular, uh, network analysis is, is very effective in identifying fraud. And I suppose another area of great interest at the moment is automation robotics. Um, yeah. What sort of impact do you see that having on the industry? I think there's a um, there's a bit of an internal arms race in the insurance industry at the moment as well. Um, so I, I think I mentioned earlier that, that when you start off tackling fraud, um, your natural place to start is in the claims space. So you can easily measure your return in, in terms of indemnity benefit against your, your investment. But if you think about it logically, if you could move those uh, detection uh, systems to the front end of the business and actually ensure that the people you're taking on and you're doing business with um, are people you want to take business with and the risks that you want to write, you actually, and we know this from um, research and from um, pilots we've run, uh, that you can improve your overall loss ratio by actually sometimes selling a little bit less business, but selling it uh, to, the right to the right people, people mm. and, and writing the, the risks that you think you're writing. Um, so there is a movement to, um, to put our controls uh, in the front end, mm. and of course we know ghost broking in the motor industry continues to be a huge problem. If you don't have controls in the front end, it will devastate your, your book of, of business. Um, so everybody is trying to move out controls to the front end. <laughs> of course, the irony is if you don't do that, 
and you become the, the, the one insurer left with no no front end controls, mm. guess where all the all the bad guys are, are going to head for? Um, so that that's a kind of that's a kind of race. And then we have technology being developed now, which is being implemented uh, progressively now across the market, where um, robotics and automation will be uh, an everyday um, an everyday occurrence um, and straight through processing of claims. So there, there will be very little human intervention between uh, insurers and, and customers. Um, the digital journey will be what everybody will want in the future um, and uh, that's great and of course it's great for customers good for insurers because there's less cost to it um, not so good for staff because I guess there'll be less staff inevitably in a, a robotized insurance world but of course if you don't have the right controls in place in this electronic and digitalized process um, then you are going to end up paying out money at the end of that process um, to your fraudsters. So it's a kind of a bit of a technology race now to ensure that um, our new digitalized journey um, and robotics in includes um, layers of counter fraud mm. detection, which are going to give us effective protection um, to continue in this in the in this. Uh, straight through processing and the role of human is still quite an important one i suppose and uh, before any FCI yes, I'm, not, start I'm, not writing, I'm not writing off, <laughs> i'm not writing off humans completely <laughs> and of course at the end if you detect uh, uh, um, some fraudulent behavior you still need uh, human intervention at, at, at that point i'm not suggesting that we do away with with, mm -hmm. with all but some of the um some of the things that we do currently just won't be done in a new digitalized world because you won't need to do them um, and that's just a fact of life not just in the insurance industry of course but in in just about every industry that you can think of yeah excellent um I suppose one final question. I've heard it said that the UK is a, a long way ahead of other insurance markets in terms of general innovation and counter fraud. Um, do you think this is true? Um, and what would you love to see other markets? Uh, you know, what would you love to see this country adopt that other markets have already done? Perhaps. I, I think the UK is, for, from my experience, it is um, a decade ahead of of. A lot of other countries, um, obviously, as a, as a large um, uh, insurer with with global interests um, at RSA, um, when I was there, uh, I travelled to quite a lot of countries. Um, uh, I've been probably just about all over Europe in terms of um, insurers. None of the other European countries have come anywhere near the level of industry cooperation that we have in the UK. And one of the biggest problems for, 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 for Europe um, is data protection. Um, it, it, is, it is strange that the UK and, and Europe effectively operate under the same um, data protection legislation, but um, it's, it's the interpretation of that legislation 
which differs so markedly between the UK uh, and the rest of Europe. And I include Ireland in that. Ireland have a, um, also a, a different perspective on, on data protection. So e even with Ireland, who tried to mirror the Insurance Fraud Bureau, um, have found difficulty with data protection. Um, so that, that's one of the problems in, in Europe. Um, Canada, America have various bodies which um, address the problem. Um, I think Canada is still is still some way off um, solving solving the problem. Um, and, and I've not seen another model anywhere else which has, has come anywhere near the Insurance Fraud Bureau. Um, and, I, and I do get asked to, to, to go out to various countries and um, help them to get their, their head around the kind of issues that they're going to have to address if they, if they want to go down this, this path, which I think is a very sensible thing, from, certainly from the UK's experience. Yeah, gets us into a very interesting conversation about the uh, culture attitude in the UK towards sharing data, data protection, um, and so on and so forth, we're one of the most surveilled countries in the world. Um, and we just seem to be a bit more comfortable with that whole approach. I think we are, I think there is at the same time a huge obligation on insurers to to actually um, deal with our customers' data um, correctly. Um, but provided we do that um, within the the um, GDPR regulations, there is sufficient um, interpretation within there that we can continue to uh, use um, customer data to detect and prevent fraud um, and I think the UK regards um, our right to protect ourselves from uh, from people basically stealing from us um, as, as a primary right that we should expect um, alongside obviously the obvious protections that people expect in terms of their data. So I think it is a balance and, and there is um, an obligation on insurers that if we are going to use customer data uh, in the way that we do, that we, we have to ensure that that data is, is securely stored and, and, and in every other way complies with the requirements of the uh, GDPR. Yeah, so transparency I'm guessing is huge important in all of this. Yes, yeah, so, I mean we're up front as every other insurer with is with with um, uh, you know obtaining their data by telling our customers what we keep and why we keep it uh, at the beginning of the insurance process, so everybody is aware. Um, that's that's what we're doing. Excellent. Um, so, any final observations, John, before we wrap up? No, other than uh, thank you very much. I've <laughs> enjoyed enjoyed the chat. I've uh, a cosy fireside chat. Record. <laughs> <laughs> For the benefit of those listening in, nothing is on fire in this room. So, so. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, well, thank you very much, John. Thank you very much, Neil John. Um, if you'd like to hear and read more on insurance fraud, go to basystems.com forward slash insurance insights. Many thanks for listening to the Intelligence Download. Don't forget to subscribe via your favourite podcast app. <laughs> <laughs>